Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, would you stand with me just for the reading of God's word this morning? Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read it, says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. This is in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You may be seated. So we've been talking since chapter 8 about the church in Corinth bringing an issue or a question to the Apostle Paul concerning meat that was first sacrificed to idols, pagan gods, false gods. And they had this question back in chapter 8 of what do we do? Do we eat the meat or do we not eat the meat? There was, there was a division going on in the church. And really in chapter 8, there were two principles that we saw. One, the Apostle Paul talked to the strong believer and said, hey, you do well. Like you have great understanding and doctrine and theology knowing that these uh, meat, this meat uh, sacrificed to the idols, is just, that's just a weird superstition of why you would stay away from it. Idols are nothing, right? They're false gods. You know, you can offer something to, to Zeus, but like at the end of the day, it's like Zeus isn't even a god, so it doesn't really matter. And so uh, these people with just a good, mature faith thought, we can eat this meat. It's cheaper. It's more readily available. Like, why not? And Paul says, yeah, you have that knowledge. You can do that. But the second principle that we saw in chapter 8 was that these stronger believers, they forgot one thing. They forgot love for the weaker Christian, the weaker believer. Because you had some that didn't have this um, knowledge or this understanding. They, they thought there was actually something to these um, false gods, these carved images, and so Paul would say like, hey, I would never eat meat again if it causes these weaker believers to stumble. Why? 
Because Paul says it's the loving thing to do. He says, your knowledge, knowing that these false gods and these idols are nothing, like that knowledge isn't leading you to love, it's leading you to arrogance. And Paul, in the, in the heart of Jesus, is like, how are we loving one another better? Like, how are we building each other up? And last week in chapter 9, Paul used his own life as an example of what it looks like to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love. And Paul showed the believers that even though he had every right as an apostle, biblically, historically, even with the stamp of Jesus, like the approval of Jesus to receive financial support from the ministry, he chose to give up that right so that the gospel could be seen in a greater light to those whom he was ministering to. He found it more effective to not take an income from the believers. And in the end of chapter 9, Paul shows us um, how we as believers should be willing to give up certain things in our lives. Maybe even good things for the sake of winning the race that God has set before us. He said in, in verse 29 or 27, but I discipline my body. And I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so Paul was using sports as his prime example. And he says, an athlete, no athlete, who is running to win a prize wants to be disqualified, right? He wants to continue to win. Like, put me in, coach. Like, I want to be in the game. I don't want to be the water guy on the sidelines, and Paul is saying that the Christian life, our lives are like, the, the, like a race from beginning to end. And just like an athlete, no Christian who has experienced the, the goodness of God, the things of God, who understands the word of God wants to be taken out of the race. No, we want to be effective, right? I mean, unless we're here and we just want to get out of hell free card, let me tell you, that's not what the gospel is all about. Jesus desires to change our lives and to use our lives, right? It's not like, hey, sweet, we're on the team and we're good on the sidelines. No, we want to be in. He's commissioned us to be in the game, to be in the battle. And he says when an athlete stops making the choices of self-denial, right? When that bodybuilder starts down in the Big Macs, like from McDonald's and the, the extra large French fries, at that point, he's probably going to become disqualified. Why? Because he's not going to be fit and ready for, to win the race. And in the Christian life, guys, it's the same way. For you and I, being saved and experiencing the things of God does not necessarily guarantee that we're going to be used of God. And that's what Paul is trying to get across in making his comparison of the, the athlete and the runner. His whole context is, is to the strong believer, someone who, who has good doctrine, someone who, who has been walking with the Lord for quite some time. To those who have understanding, he says, you guys need to understand something. You're about to get disqualified. Why? Because you're not mixing love with your knowledge. You've become arrogant. And so he says, listen up, you need to continue to learn to discipline your body, to learn to continue to die to yourself, the things that your flesh wants, like die, like it never stops. Because if you stop choosing to deny yourself, you're going to be benched and someone else will take your place. Like you're not indispensable. And that brings us here to chapter 10 where, where Paul brings a caution to the believers, Chapter 9, he, you know, he, again, he lays out the example of his own life and ministry. 
And here in chapter 10, Paul lays out a a bad example, and he uses the nation of Israel as like exhibit A, like look at the nation of Israel. Here's what not to be like as followers of Jesus. So let's begin looking at verse one. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. So Paul, he begins by retelling the story of the Exodus and the wilderness. And we're gonna spend a lot of time bouncing back and forth looking at the wilderness experience. And this story, if you're familiar to the the Bible, might be familiar to you. But Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And they were under harsh, oppressive rulers. They were forced to make bricks out of straw. and, And one day they're crying out to the Lord, God, redeem us, like save us, set us free. And God does just that. And God redeemed his people. He sets them free. They cross through the Red Sea. God parts the waters. There's like a wall of water on each side. They safely walk through into freedom. It's a true miracle. And now they're in the wilderness. And God is with them and he shows his presence with them by giving the people a cloud by day and fire by night. And there's this cloud that would walk with, his peop- with the people of God, um, giving them shade in the wilderness, giving them shade from the hot desert sun. And at night, it's a pillar of fire. And again, it's all of a reminder. It's a symbol to them of God's presence, that he's with them in the wilderness. You grateful that God is with you in the wilderness? It says that they had spiritual food and spiritual drink. Now, spiritual doesn't mean that it wasn't physical or material, but spiritual food means that this food was given, this drink was given to them by God himself. God provided for them in the wilderness. It was called manna. It literally came down from the sky, bread from heaven. And he gave them water to drink. In fact, look at verse four. It says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, I love this picture. It's Jesus, he says, is giving them water in the wilderness. Think of it, it's dry, just dusty land. You're walking about, no doubt, just tired, hot, maybe heat stroke, your mouth is dry, all you need is water. You feel like your body's shutting down, and this tells us that Jesus is the living water. We looked at that in the church in the park, and Jesus went to the woman of the well, the living water. But think about this, what does water do? Water refreshes us, right? It satisfies us, water brings life. And again, that's what Jesus does. Listen, people, I I believe, I don't know if you see it this way, this is how I see it, people are thirsty for God whether they know it or not. <laughs> I was meeting with, with one guy uh, this week. He was sharing a little bit of his story with me. And he's like, man, my whole life, I was searching for God. I didn't know it, but that's what I was searching for. And I see it all throughout Portland is that people are hungry and they're thirsty for depth and meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction. They're thirsty for this. And it's like they're, they're going out and they're drinking out of the Willamette. <laughs> 
Like, why would you do that? It's nasty when Jesus is here. Fresh living water is here. Like, I won't even get in a boat on the Willamette. It's that gross. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus is the water to them. And so Paul, he's bringing up Israel's history in the wilderness. God bailing them out. He was with them. He was faithful to them, a cloud by day, fire by night, giving them spiritual food and drink. And then he says in verse 5, nevertheless, uh-oh, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, if you go back and you read the story in the book of Numbers, again, God delivered his people, blessed them, provided for them, and they didn't trust God. God had just shown up in this huge, miraculous way, making the impossible possible. They received it. They were mere benefactors of it. And then they turned their back on the Lord. And most of them died in the wilderness and never entered the promised land, right? It was only Joshua and Caleb were the only, the only ones that were able from that generation to go in. And so Paul is telling the church in Corinth, this, he's like, this is a cautionary story for you. He says, there's a pattern here that you need to remember what happened to the people then. Paul is sharing again this story of the Exodus to encourage this church toward endurance in the wilderness. When we're in the wilderness in our own lives, and I think you guys probably catch that picture, you know, are we going to run this race with aim and with purpose? Or are we going to lose sight of the race that God has called us to and just die in the wilderness being unfaithful, not enduring? I think, remember that the author of Hebrews said this, let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Let us run with endurance, Let's keep focused on, on what truly matters. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Again, this was written. Paul is reminding them as an example. He's like using Israel. He's like, learn from them, church in Corinth. Learn from them. Again, he says in verse six, now these things happen as examples for us. Why? So that he says, we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Paul is saying, this is for us, guys. And I would say the same thing to you and I this morning. Like, this is for us. This story, whether it's in Exodus or Numbers or 1 Corinthians, it's for you and I. God was doing this again then so that we might be faithful now, that we would learn from these examples. And he's saying again to the, these believers, you're no different than the people in the wilderness that we read about in the Old Testament. He says, you were in slavery to sin, Corinth. You were in slavery, you were in bondage, you were held captive to your sin, but then Jesus came, the promised Savior came and set you free, not from slavery in Egypt, but from the slavery of your sin. And you came through the waters. Again, not, they didn't come through the waters of the Red Sea, but the waters of baptism. You're now one in Christ. You identify with Christ. They identify with Moses. You identify with Christ. And he says, you have God's presence with you, church in Corinth. 
Not as a cloud by day and a fire by night. No, no, no. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. He says, you have spiritual food and drink. You don't have manna. And they're probably like, thank you, Lord. But you you have the Lord's Supper. You have the body of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, God has done this amazing work in your life. He has saved you. He has delivered you. But now, look at you. You are doing exactly what the nation of Israel did in the wilderness. You find yourself, you're not in bondage anymore. No, 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 that's good. But you're not in the promised land yet. And you're mimicking Israel in all their bad ways. You're forgetting God. You're you're looking to other gods. Your only concern is for you, your joy, your happiness, your comfort, your contentment. And then he says, but they, remember this, Corinth. They did not make it to the promised land. They took their eyes off the Lord. They got their priorities out of whack and placed it on so many different things. Now, I want you to note here, the point of this passage is not to get you to question your salvation. Listen, you and I this morning, we become a Christian by trusting in Jesus, receiving his grace through faith and following him. We're saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. And we're one day going to be perfected by grace. And listen, this morning we can have assurance of our salvation, not by our own good works, but because of his amazing grace. So this is not about are you saved or you're not saved. When it talks about disqualification, it's not about losing salvation. It's about effectiveness in ministry, being faithful to the calling that the Lord has on each of our lives. And my prayer is for you and I that we would endure till the end. The days in which you and I live are evil, evil, evil. There is temptation everywhere. There are trials in all of our lives looking to pick us off, looking to distract us. There's our flesh that we battle with that also like, oh, but you know, you really want to make our lives about this. Like, listen, anything the devil will use to distract you and to get your eyes off of Jesus, he's going to do that. But my prayer is for all of us that we would endure to the end. Some of you are going through very difficult things in your life. My prayer is that you will endure, that I will endure. Again, that our eyes would be fixed upon Jesus. And for us to endure, though, we have to know God's word. We have to know God's word. We have to know the story of scripture. This is one consecutive story. can just thread it through scripture, every book of the Bible. We have to know what he's done, what he's doing, and what one day he's going to do. And how does he want us, you and I today, to live in light of that, in light of his story? And Paul says all of this, the Old Testament, the New Testament was written as an example for us. And my prayer this morning for us is that his word, this word, not not mine exactly, but his word would be your story, that you would live according to his word. Listen, your story that God has written for you is not the American dream. Your story is not self-fulfillment. It's not finding yourself. It's not expressing yourself. 
Your story is not the story of making enough money so that one day you can retire, buy the RV and the boat and the, the nice car and go travel the world at your own leisure and just focus on you. That can be part of your story, but that's not your story. The Bible tells us that our story is the story of a gracious and loving God who redeems broken and lost people and he brings us into his kingdom. And he partners with us. He invites us to partner with him in his mission to bring others into his kingdom by his grace because of his great love. Church, this is our story. This is what God is calling us to, to be all in and to be all there for Jesus in the day and age in which we live, that we would endure and so again, to endure the difficulties of life, we have to know God's word. We have to know the word of God. We have to know where we're at in the story of God. And so you're not in Egypt anymore, yay. But you're not in the promised land yet. You're in the wilderness, the dry, hot, miserable wilderness. And we have to learn to endure in this season. So secondly, after knowing God's word, you have to heed God's warning. And we're gonna look at that in verses seven through 10. Paul's gonna give us four warnings to heed. He gave us four blessings from Israel and now four warnings. And again, the goal is in our lives is to run with aim, to run with purpose. And these four warnings against sin resulted in the disqualification of the nation of Israel to, to go into the promised land. And so Paul is bringing these up to encourage us to learn from their example. Look at verse seven. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. He says, don't be idolaters. <laughs> now, an idol, you're like, what's an idol? Like, how can I be an idolater? Um, an idol is anything that you look to in place of God to save you. You might say, well, I believe God is my savior, but functionally, listen, you look to other things in your life to save you. And so God's people, they're in the wilderness. They worship God. They loved God. He redeemed them. But when times got difficult and hard, they started to question. They started to, you know, when water ran out, when they stopped liking the food, when, when, the, when the people, they, you know, grew impatient with God, they started looking elsewhere. They started looking to other gods. They started looking to other saviors. And he's referencing Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 tells us the story about how God, he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. They came to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to, to talk with the Lord, to commune with the Lord on top of the mountain. The people are at the base of the mountain. This is where like the whole Ten Commandments story comes in. But the people at the base, they were tired, man. They were, they were done waiting. They were impatient. Where's Moses? When's God gonna lead us to the promised land? When, when, you know, where kind of is God at? And they started to question God. They started to question, was God really our savior? And they started looking for other saviors. Exodus 32 verse one says, now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
They started worshiping this idol. They started bowing down. They started looking to this other savior in the midst of trouble, in the midst of weariness. And it's a sad, sad story. Now we can hear this story and we think to ourselves, well, I would never worship a golden calf. Like how silly of them, like how just ridiculous. But listen, yeah, here we are. We all struggle with looking at politicians and politics and entertainment and sports and comfort and careers, something or someone who will give us what only God can give us. I think Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to, that is your God. That's what you're looking to, to save you. And here's, you know, like, well, how can I tell if I have idols in my life? You know, what is an idol in your life? Just complete this sentence. Maybe just to yourself. <laughs> Here's the sentence. If I just had blank. If I just, however you complete, if I just had, if I could just own a home in Portland. If I could just get that job that I've always wanted. If I could just get married. If I could just do this or do that. Then I would be happy then I would be satisfied. Then I would be secure. Guys, I wrestle with this myself. Like sometimes I, I, I could answer that question if I just had my daughter back. You see, however you answer that question, what you're essentially doing is we're looking to those things to give us fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning and purpose, and only God can do that. You're looking at those things to be gods in our lives. We don't call them gods. We don't call them idols. But listen, they can't save you. They'll only disappoint you. And the warning from God to his people is this, be aware of idolatry. Be aware of these false saviors that we so often look to. But here's the thing. We not only need to remove these idols from our lives, but we have to replace them with Jesus. To be able to say in our lives, Jesus is number one. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is where I find my identity, where I find my satisfaction, where I find my worth. I heard it once said that idolatry is when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. And that's the scary part of all of this, that we can take a good thing like marriage or friendship or a job and a good career, like those are all good things, but we elevate them to the place of God himself. And Paul says, do not be idolaters. Learn from the nation of Israel. Now, the second warning he gives is in verse eight. He says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. He's, again, he's referring back to, to the wilderness. There's a lot of sexual immorality going on. And in Numbers 25, verse one, it says, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Strong language there. And they're involved in the sexual immorality. But what's interesting, it happens in verse two of Numbers 25, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their God. So not only is the nation of Israel engaging in sexual immorality, which is wrong and sinful in and of itself, but now they're starting to worship the gods and idols of the people of Moab. 
And God isn't happy um, at all with it. This is the people that he loves. This is the people that he's cared for and been faithful to and has kept his end of the, the, the covenant with. And, and, he, and he goes to Moses. This is a crazy story. He goes to Moses. He says, Moses, there's so much sexual immorality and pagan worship. We need to wipe out the ringleaders. I think that's the New Living um, version. Wipe out the ringleaders. Get rid of sin. Like sin is bad. And so Moses, he issues this order to have these leaders put to death. And even after this order goes, and, and, and the order was this, go in the daylight. Take sin serious. Like don't wait at night like, like so that everyone else can see the consequences and the devastation of sin. So in the broad daylight, you go take these ringleaders and execute them. Like take sin serious, right? So this order has been, been issued. And then here's this guy, this Israeli guy coming, broad daylight, everyone can see, bold about his sin with this harlot and goes right into the ten, tent and goes to have sexual relations with her. Broad daylight. That's how bad sin had grown. It was blatant. It was out in the public. It was there. And this Aaron's grandson, Phineas, I love this story. He's like, I'm going to take sin serious. He grabs his spear and he just starts darting towards that same tent that this guy went into. And he pierces them both with his spear in the act of sexual immorality. Guys, take sin serious. That is a prime example. But... The consequences of the immorality of the nation of Israel, over 20,000 people were killed. So Paul is issuing this warning to the church in Corinth. Hey, you guys have a lot of sexual immorality going on in your church. And the third warning is in verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Now we find this sad scene in Numbers 21, where we find that the nation of Israel speaking out against God and Moses, and they're like, why have you brought us out of Egypt just to let us die in the wilderness? Like, their just eyes were on them, themselves. But one of Israel's greatest problems was failing to be content in the season that God had them. God graciously was providing for them, and yet it wasn't enough for them. And this trying, or maybe your translation says testing, listen, is the opposite of trusting God. And it's kind of like approaching, I liken it to this, approaching God like he's some sort of vending machine. It's saying, okay, God, fine, like I'll do this. I'm going to do these things and see if you come through, right? It's this transactional relationship with God that says like, God, i I went to church five weeks in a row. Like, where's my spouse? Like, you promised. <laughs> or God, like, I tithed like $5. Like, where's the blessing, Lord? Like, like, I'm ready for it, but we're testing God. And the problem is that we're trying to bargain with God, trying to bend his will to ours as, as if that's how he relates to us. And it's not. It's not how God relates to us. God has initiated this relationship by grace. Listen, we deserve judgment and he gave us mercy. We don't come to God with any demands. He owes us nothing except for judgment. And yet he pursued us in love and with kindness and he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins. So we don't come to God with our demands, our list. God, okay, I'll follow you, but here's, here's my list. Now the fourth warning is this. Look at verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, Paul, most likely, there was a lot of grumbling, but most likely referencing Numbers 11. Again, you got to think back about that story. I don't want to be redundant. 
but the nation was in slavery in Egypt, horrible conditions, worst conditions that you can ever imagine. And God delivers them. Not only does he deliver them, but he provides for them food and water, miraculous thing, manna coming down from heaven, water flowing out of a rock. Their initial response as a nation was praise the Lord. Glory to God. Like, this is amazing. He's our redeemer. He's our provider. We're going to always be faithful to him no matter what. And then a week later, (laughs) a week comes by, and they're like, I don't really like this manna. Like, can we get some avocados falling from the sky, God? Like, that would be really helpful. I'm really into avocado toast right now. Some Ezekiel bread. That would be amazing. And they're starting to complain about Moses' leadership. And the sad thing is they're starting to long for the days of Pharaoh. Oh, for the days of Pharaoh. Gracious Pharaoh, who slaughtered our people and forced us. Gracious Pharaoh, surely we had it better with Pharaoh back in Egypt. And they wanted to go back into Egypt. They became so bitter And their perspective becomes so skewed that they start to view their former slavery as freedom. And they forget about all of the amazing riches and blessings that they have have with God and they start to grumble and complain. And that word grumble means to complain like under your breath. It's like, you know God's there, right? He's faithful. You saw the manna coming from heaven and you're like, I hate this manna. Like, where's the avocados? Like, I just like whatever. (laughs) Complaining, grumbling. Now, again, I know it's easy for us to critique Israel. Like, man, this is a miracle. Manna, bread falling from heaven. But what about us? Many of you remember the first day that you gave your life to Jesus. For some of you, that was a long time ago. Others of you, not, it was in the recent, you know, history. And you're like, what? Like your, your response, and hopefully this was your response. You gave your life to Jesus, and you're like, what? Like this is incredible. The God that I was cursing, the God that I was running from graciously, like forgave me of all of my sins, past, present, and future, brought me into his family, gave me a seat at his table, has welcomed me in. Like, this is amazing. God, I'll worship you. I'll do anything for you. And then three years maybe into it, we're like, uh, do, we, do we have to go to church every week? <laughs> like, like, the football game's on, right? It's 10 o'clock, like... Are the pastors like that desperate that they need us there every week? <laughs> but we start, to, we start to grumble and we start to complain. Like, I can't believe they sang that song again. Like, why don't they sing more, more, more hymns? Or why don't they sing more like, you know, Hillsong songs? Like, oh, just wait. Pastor Kevin's going to ask me to serve. Like, this is, uh, I'm just waiting for it. And we start to grumble. And the scariest part, we all do this. Church becomes a show. We don't call it that ever, but it becomes a thing that we attend and we go home. It's something that we do. And we start taking for granted the unending gifts of God's grace. And we become entitled. Now, I know it's easy to point out entitlement in our culture because it's blatant, it's out there. But we as believers can become entitled. You see, the way that entitlement works is that you get something, you're grateful for it. You get it again, you start getting used to it. You get it yet again, and you start thinking, I deserve this. 
Church, it's a miracle of God's grace that he has saved us that he draws us together, that we get to hear his word, that we get to come before the throne of God with confidence. May we never take this for granted. We had a pastor here, some of you know Dave Chafee, and he used to always tell me, but man, you know what I deserve, right? I deserve like wrath. I deserve to like, judgment and punishment from God. That's what I deserve. But yet God was so merciful and gracious. He just had this beautiful understanding of the grace and mercy of God. But yet we can take it for granted. So may we never take his grace for granted. I think we as believers should be the most grateful people in the whole world. Because we're the people that, that, that know that we deserve nothing. God has given us everything. So how do we endure in the wilderness? You've got to know God's word. You've got to heed God's warning. And then thirdly and lastly, you've got to trust God's faithfulness. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So again, this was written uh, for them and for us. It's a good reminder that scripture, it was once said, was written to them, but it was written for us. It wasn't written to us, it was written for us. And Paul is saying that we even have a greater responsibility than Israel did here because we have their examples and their mistakes to learn from. I think of of Jesus' words in in Luke 12. He says, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. That's the church of Corinth. That's us. That's you and I. We've been given these examples. We've been given these warnings. We've seen these bad things to stay away from. We, it's up to us to learn from them. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. Remember the church in Corinth, they, there was an arrogant, uh, arrogance, there was a smugness about them. The believers were abusing their freedoms and their rights because, uh, they, because they knew they were eternally secure, right? Like we're safe in Jesus, right? They started living recklessly. They stopped caring about others. They stopped loving their weaker be- uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. They're only concerned with themselves. And Paul, Paul tells them, watch out lest you fall. Corinth, you're not above falling here. And the call for us as a church is to not grow complacent, to not be unaware of the battles that we're in. Listen, the devil, like I said earlier, would like nothing better than to get you to fall and render you and I disqualified from the work of God. And we are under constant attack We're in a battle where the enemy is, again, trying to pick us off, trip us up. And Paul says, we're running this race that must be won. We're fighting a war. Paul would use those, that analogy. We're fighting a war against a clever and ruthless enemy whose devices are clever and whose strategies are subtle. And the moment, listen, the moment you think you've made it spiritually, you are a prime target to be attacked by the enemy. And Paul says, believer, take heed lest you fall. Take heed. Don't let pride lead you to a place where you don't think you desperately need God's grace. Listen, if you're a believer here this morning, you need God more today or just as much today as the first day that you trusted him. I need God, just as much. I need Jesus just as much today. I need his grace just as much today as the first day that I trusted in him. He goes on in verse 13. He says, no temptation 
has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Pause right there. This is important. Because when you and I, and I don't know if you're like me, maybe you're not, when we struggle with temptation, it's so easy to think that I'm the only one struggling. Nobody else here gets it, right? Everyone else, you know, looks like they have their act together. They look so great. They're probably all super mature Christians. They probably don't struggle where I struggle. Listen, that's a lie from the pit of hell. There is no temptation that is not uncommon to man. Listen, whatever you're struggling with right now in your life, other people are probably struggling just as much with it. Probably the person sitting next to you. You're like, who's that? (laughs) (laughs) But the call is we don't have to go through temptation alone. We try to battle this by ourselves. He, he goes on in verse 13, he says, God is faithful. These, listen, these are the, most, the three most important words in this entire passage. We're, you know, we're talking about endurance, right? Staying faithful. But the key to endurance is not our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. God is faithful always, everywhere, at all times. When we're unfaithful, God is faithful. When we forget God, God is faithful. When we struggle, God is faithful. When we fail, God is faithful. When we sin, God is faithful. When we're weak, God is faithful. Listen, our hope is not in our faithfulness to God, but in his faithfulness to us. Amen? God is faithful, but that doesn't mean, listen, that we don't have to be faithful. You see, I heard it once said, God's faithfulness to us produces faithfulness in us. And it's possible. That's why he goes on in verse 13. He says, he says, God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So God allows you to be tempted, but never beyond what you can bear. So when you feel like this temptation is too strong, listen, that's a lie from the enemy. When you feel like, like, oh, I'll just never overcome this sin or this temptation, that's a lie from the enemy. When you think, oh, I'll never change, that's a lie from the pit of hell. God is faithful, church. There's always a way out. It's up to us. Are we going to take that way out? He says, he says this, that God is faithful. He says, this is so that you will be able to endure. That's the goal. That last line there in verse 13. So that you will be able to endure it. Listen, some of you today are questioning whether you can endure until the end. Maybe it's been a hard season for you. Whatever your story is, maybe you're questioning that because, listen, because you're you're looking at your own faithfulness or lack thereof. And I want to encourage, I want to plead with you this morning to look to God's faithfulness. He is for you. He is with you in your wilderness. Wherever you're at in your life, in your story, in your journey, he's with you. He loves you. So again, how do we endure the wilderness? We've got to know God's word. We've got to heed God's warning. But the third thing, we have to trust his faithfulness. Amen? Amen. I want to close. Josh, Josh can come out if he's listening. But I want to close this morning. Matthew 4. You see a fulfillment of this. Matthew 4 is, tells us the story of Jesus in the wilderness. We're told in Matthew 4 that Jesus went out to the wilderness for 40 days. Israel was in the wilderness for 
Jesus was in there for 40 days. It's symbolic. Israel went into the wilderness and failed. Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted. And where Israel failed, Jesus was faithful. He is faithful on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave for us. That means that the clean record that you and I need was accomplished by his life. That he lived the perfect life where you, he knew you were and I were gonna fail. That the forgiveness that we so desperately need and desire was accomplished by his death on the cross. And the new life that he promises us that we so long for was accomplished by his resurrection. And this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I wanna call you to today to put your trust in Jesus. Not in yourself, not in your works, not in your own effort to appease God and to make him happy. No, 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 trust Jesus. Listen, this morning, if you're weary, let him strengthen you. If you're in a place of despair, let Jesus be your hope. If you're discouraged, let Jesus put courage in you. If you're exhausted this morning, the call is to let Jesus be your rest. Let Jesus be your rest. Church, Jesus is faithful. And because of that, we can endure in the wilderness. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.